John 15. I'll pray as we get into it. Father, what an amazing section of Scripture we're about ready to encounter. Help us to engage it. Help us to understand it so we apply it. But help us just to be marveled by your word. Just be blown away by it. They're the words of Jesus. And I just pray that you open the, my heart and you open the hearts of everybody sta- sitting here tonight that they would be able to absorb this message and apply it to their lives so you get glory. So help me teach it. Let me preach it. And help those who are here sitting who need to hear this message to, to have their ears opened up and their hearts ready for your word. I thank you that we have a church that just loves and desires the word of God. And tonight, as we come on a, on a Wednesday night, in the middle of our week, we need to be re-energized and to encounter you. And so I pray that you come and dwell amongst us. You're always invited. And that we just partake of your word together and be, be full in it. And so, Jesus, to speak through me tonight with your Holy Spirit. I can't do a thing without your Holy Spirit. So send your Holy Spirit um, to, to speak through me and send your Holy Spirit for everyone here to listen to the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read the first section of this, the first eight verses, even though I'm going to be reading through more and going through more. Read the first eight verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Of course, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. This little section of scripture right here is is really special to me because God, in my and my personal life really met me in this scripture. And it actually happened this year. I was in Uganda. And we were at the end of our trip. And by this time, I had probably given 15 or 20 messages in a week. At the end of your trip, you're just exhausted. You're going and you're going. And everywhere I go, I have to give a message. And, um, and it's usually a different message. And, and 
And at the end of this trip, um, we went to a prison, a prison for minor offenses. So most of these people are not going to be in the prison longer than two years. And we go there one Thursday evening, and we walk in, and like all Ugandan prisons, the men are dressed up in these yellow prison suits with shorts. Obviously, it's hot. And they welcome you. They very, they're very welcoming. The, the worship inside of a Ugandan prison is unmatched. They are amazing. You know. So I, we all go there. The whole entire team goes there. I'm gonna, I believe I was going to teach out of the book of Acts. And, well, I get there, and our team's lined up. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, man, I'm not feeling this, this message from the book of Acts. And, and you gotta, you got to picture this prison. It is probably a quarter of the size at most of this sanctuary. And it's actually a pretty decent prison for Ugandan standards. And we walk in. They're all lined up, and they're just sitting there. Our team is on the other side, and we're all looking at them, and they're looking at us. And I'm about, i got to give this message and I see where I'm going to be preaching from is right in the middle, the courtyard. This is all happening outside. And right there, smack dab in the middle is a papaya tree, probably no taller than 15 feet, 20 feet. And it had these papayas growing off the top, or hanging off the bottom of them. And I thought, oh, this, this passage of scripture right here, this is what I'm teaching right here, because this is a direct object lesson that they can grasp, they can see, and they can relate it to the scriptures. And I, I really felt the Holy Spirit in that message. Um, and at the end, we did the, the salvation call, and out of probably, a, I don't know, 100, 120 men, did you say, Gail, about that many? Half of them come to Christ. And, yeah, it's, it's amazing. But So we were walking out of the prison. The entire team's walking out of the prison. And this timid, like a, a very mild-mannered, meek man comes running up to me. One of the prisoners who came to Christ is like, I want to tell you something, Pastor. Please let, hear me out. Last night, as I was sleeping... I had a dream, and in that dream, some people were going to come visit us tomorrow, and they were going to come. They came from far away on some thing that flies in the air. He didn't know really what a plane was, <laughs> and it was so real to me, and then I wake up. And it was so real, I could not help but to go tell my, my friends there in the prison that we're going to have visitors today. And so I'm sitting here listening to this. I'm like, are you serious? Like, I've heard of these stories before, but I've never been a part of one. So maybe the skeptical side of me was there a little bit, maybe. And I was just like, well, all those friends you told, bring them here. Let's rejoice. And I want to hear their testimony. And they come and they validate his story. That this man had a dream about our team coming into the prison. He goes and tells the people, and God gets the glory because it was a God thing. It wasn't a man thing. And this message was the message that was given, the first, at least the first eight verses. And so every time I think of this passage of Scripture, I think the glory of God. I think God is amazing. He was, it was a miracle in my life. 
at the end of the message or at the end of the service, I was just, we're just worn out after a full week of ministry nonstop. And to have God come and say, Kent, I am even in northern Uganda in some lonely prison hanging out. This is what I do. And I told you, when you come and visit me in prison in Matthew chapter 25, if you go to the, those who are in prison, those who are sick, those who need food and all those things, you're doing it as unto me. And it just reminds me, like, God, you're so right. Your, word, your, your promises are so good. And so I come to this scripture, and I just, every time I think of it, I just think, man, I just remember what God did in the midst of this. And I tell you that so you can just say, you know what? I'm having a tough time right now maybe even believing. That's a miracle of God. Only stuff like that happens when God allows it to happen. We have a reason to worship God because he's living and he's real and he can prove it to you if you just step out in faith and just go. Amen? Amen. So when we encounter this scripture tonight, we read through this scripture. I pray God does a miracle in your life. I pray that he meets you where you need to be met. And so as we are in this scripture... Coming off of 14 is the end of the upper room discourse. It's the Passover meal. It's a big time for the children of Israel this season. Everybody comes to Jerusalem for this. It's mandated out of Leviticus chapter 23. It's one of the three mandatory pilgrimages all the children of Israel to come to if they can. So this place was packed. Jesus finds an upper room, and they do the Passover meal. And so we see at the very last part of verse 14, it says, Arise and let us go from here. So they're done eating, and we know that he's walking on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He has to walk through town at this point. We know the Passover meal is to be eaten at night, so we know what time around, what it was like at least outside. We know Passover time is a full moon. We know that for sure. And so... Did you guys see the full moon a couple nights ago? Yeah. You go outside and you see, it's like majestic, right? Even when we have city lights, it's like majestic when you go outside. When there are no city lights, if you're out in the country or you're up in the mountains where there's no lights around, and it's a full moon, it's just, it's brilliant, it's beautiful. And on this night, right before Jesus is about ready to be crucified, we're about 15 hours from crucifixion at this point. He's walking with his disciples, now 11 of them, because Judas went off. And he's giving his last teaching to them before he departs from them. And we know when somebody's about ready to depart that they're going to give a powerful message. And we have a powerful message right here. It's Jesus' really his last words to his disciples before his crucifixion. And as they were going, he must have probably, we know that Jesus likes to use objects to, to teach a lesson. And maybe he was next to a vineyard by a grapevine, or he was walking by the temple. Because he had to go through town, he had to walk by the temple before he got into the Kidron Valley and went up into the Mount Olives, and there's the Garden of Gethsemane that sits up there. We know the temple, the front gate, had a very lavish, lavish golden grapevine with all its tendrils and everything coming out, huge. And it says, in history, it says that when light was hitting it the right way, you could see it for up to a mile away. That's how much gold was hanging off the entrance to the temple. Regardless, 
whether it was just a simple grapevine or it was that huge ornamentation hanging off the, the main gate at the temple, Jesus was probably looking at something and is saying, I am going to use this as an object lesson so you understand it. And he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. The grapevine was the national symbol of Israel. And when Jesus says, I am the true vine, this is his seventh and last I am statement. The I am statements are huge in the book of John because only God himself refers to himself as the I am. I am, like he told Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. I am that I am sends you to go get the children of Israel. Very important name for the children of Israel. So every time Jesus uses it, like, well, that's God's name. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So right out of the gate, we see that Jesus is saying, I am a vine. My father is the husbandman, or the vine dresser, the gardener, the farmer. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. And it may bear more fruit. So Jesus is the vine. The Father takes care of the fruit, the vines, everything, the branches. It's his garden. And he's looking. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more. So we get this, this scripture here where Jesus is just coming right out. He's probably looking at this grapevine, and he says, this is me. If you were to picture this grapevine, these branches do not have life outside of the vine. They're in me. And every grapevine has to be pruned. If it doesn't, it's not going to produce fruit. God is the person who comes around and he tends to those grapevines. So it produces fruit. And if that thing does not, any branch that does not bear fruit, he's going to cut off. But if it does bear fruit, he's going to prune. I don't know how many times I've, I've, I've read a book on this. or maybe heard a message or something along the sorts of pruning. So if you're a believer, you're going to produce fruit. If you're not a believer in Christ, you're not abiding in the vine, you're not going to produce any fruit and God's going to cut you off. But either way, it's like the negative thing. Somebody's going to get cut, right? And you kind of walk out just kind of like squirming. You're like, when is God going to prune me? And you kind of have like one eye in the back looking, right? And you're just like, when is it going to happen? Regardless, if I'm producing fruit, then he's going to punish me so I produce more fruit. And, but if you break it down into the Greek, it's katharos, this word, prune, katharos, which means to purify, to cleanse, to lift up. And so we get a different picture when we read this word in the Greek because it's more of a caring thing. That, yeah, he's pruning you, but he's, it's delicate. He's kind of coming and he's gentle with them. He cares about that 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 branch that's producing the grapes. But to say that God is going to start lopping stuff off and you're going to experience an enormous amount of pain because that's the only way he can get your attention, well, we do see that in the Scripture. Sometimes he does inflict pain to get your attention. We see that in the children of Israel over and over and over in the Old Testament. 
We do see that. But in this passage of Scripture, I catch more of a gentle father who's tending to us, who really cares about our state. And if he does have to maybe inflict pain, but it's for a greater purpose, but there's a lot of times where he can get your attention without doing that. He can just, he can gently nudge you. He can sit you back up when you mess up. He can put you back up. He can cleanse you. He can clean you. And yeah, there's times where I felt like the pruning is a little bit more severe in my life than others. But to be honest with you, I don't go around like yearly think if, and I feel like I just have a constant gaping wound because God keeps pruning me. I don't feel that way. I don't know if you feel that way, but I don't necessarily feel that way. And I tell you what, I feel like I know so much more about Jesus and about God, and I feel like I'm living out so much more than I even was last year. And it was through gentle nudgings, and it was through gentleness that God got me there. And there's been some times where I, I feel like I'm defeated because I maybe I had spoken too soon or offended someone, and the Holy Spirit comes with conviction. And that may be a way he prunes as well. But when we look at this and we say, God's a, he's a caring God who's gentle, it kind of gives a different flavor of this passage. And so as we read this, I kind of just want to point that out to you. And it says in verse 3, you are already clean because of what? The word which I have spoken to you. The word of God is a cleansing agent. It just says it right here. The more we're in the word and we're applying the word, the more we're going to be clean. That's what he's saying. But when you accept Jesus' word, you're pure, you're holy, because you're living for Jesus. But if you don't, then you're not pure and you're not holy, you're not clean. But the word of God makes you pure and clean. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. It's pretty, he's, he's really just point blank with this, isn't he? Like, if you think that you can survive apart from Jesus, apart from me, he's saying, you can't. You can't do, you can do nothing unless you abide in Christ. In me, he didn't say any, he didn't give any other way. He didn't give another avenue. If you abide in Christ, you're going to bear fruit. If you don't abide in Christ, you're not going to bear fruit. And then there's the consequence of God cutting you off. Totally. A branch can't bear fruit of itself. You know that, like, we can just, we can go to the, an apple grove. I can cut off a huge limb that has all these apples. And I can bring it in, and I can take off those apples, and they're going to be great. But is that thing going to blossom next year? Of course not. It's not. It's going to wither, and it's going to die. And as, if you can picture that in your own spiritual life, you cannot grow without abiding in who Jesus is and engaging with Jesus. If you're in the vine, you're going to grow. This is absolute truth, not relative. The world is full of relative truth. There's many ways to God. There's, there's, many oper there's, there's just a whole host of ways. And Jesus is like, there's one way. If you abide in me, if you're connected to me, 
then you're going to bear fruit. You're going to live. But if you don't, you're not. You're going to wither and die. Don't buy into this whole, this world theology. I mean, at the end of the day, it is only about Jesus. That's it. And it was prophesied from the beginning all the way to the end. It's all about Jesus. And some people are just like, well, it's just, it's, just always, it's always about Jesus to you. I can't help it. I, I honestly can't. When I read scripture like this, it's like, if I'm not daily abiding in Jesus, then I'm not abiding in God's favor. And I want to be pleasing to my heavenly father. And he gave me this amazing son named Jesus to connect me with him so I have eternal relationship with him and he can use me on this earth, why would I try to abide in anything other than Jesus? And when I fall down, I get back on and I say, Jesus, forgive me, thank you. But I always turn to Jesus, I'll always go to Jesus. In this church, you're always going to hear the name of Jesus. Every service, you're going to hear the name of Jesus. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Literally nothing, he says. And I don't know if you heard the story before of this little boy who goes to his mom. And he's trying to, to be good, to be good enough, and he wants to earn something if he's good enough. And we do that too, right? Like we think that we can earn something from God if we're good enough, right? But this mother says, or this little boy comes up to his mom, and, and he says, Mom, if I'm good enough today, can I have a dollar? I earn a dollar if I'm good enough today. And the mom looks down, she says, sweetheart, why don't you just be more like your father and just be good for nothing? <laughs> just be good for nothing. Why can't you just be good for no reason? <laughs> we can't be good enough. Yet we try to be good enough, but regardless... He's satisfied. When you're in his son, he's satisfied totally in you. Totally satisfied. And his grace covers you. But yet we want to try to earn God's favor. And then when we fall off, we stumble or whatever, we feel like we, now we have to make it up. And God, he loves you the same regardless. Matter of fact, he loved you before you loved him. That's what's so amazing about our Heavenly Father. He loved us before we loved Him and accepted Him. We can't earn His approval, but we can please Him. We can sure please Him by accepting His Son. We're going to find our joy through the Jesus Christ, His Son. And so our, our level of joy is going to be full when we're fully in Jesus Christ. Our happiness, however can go up and down, can definitely go up and down. It's usually conditional. The reason why I'm happy is because of this condition right here. However, joy, you can't take my joy away from me because I'm in Christ, my identity's in Christ, and I know what he's done for me. You might be able to take my happiness away from me, but you can't take my joy, and we're going to get into that here. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. And so by this, 
my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. It's a lot of fruit going on here. God wants fruity Christians, right? I don't know how many times he mentions it here. It's a lot. He wants a fruit, a, a Christian that's bearing fruit as any person who would, uh, who's over a vineyard, a farmer. The whole, the whole point of it is, is so it would bear fruit. It would have fruit to bear. And he wants us to because that's where our joy is. It's in bearing fruit for God because we're satisfied in him and he's satisfied in us. What's Piper say? The chief end of man is to be fully satisfied in their heavenly father or in Jesus Christ. That's, our, that's your chief end. It's my chief end is to be fully satisfied in, in God. And that's what he wants. And when we are, we're going to be dangling with fruit. We're going to be dangling with fruit. But what is fruit anyways, right? We can get this, yeah, that's great. What's, this, what's all this whole fruit thing about? Is there a definition for it? What we see in, throughout Scripture is really he's talking about mainly one thing, and that's love. He gives us an example, and probably one of the, maybe the first place you're going to in your head right now is Galatians chapter 5. But let's go there because it helps us define what fruit is. And so let's go to Galatians chapter 5 quickly. It's after Corinthians, before Ephesians. So you have this whole thing of walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. Walking in the flesh means you've got no fruit. You're producing no fruit. Whatever your actions are in the flesh are not fruit. They're the opposite of fruit. But when you're walking in the spirit, you should have fruit, and it looks like a certain thing. That's what this passage is going to tell us here. I want to go through the negative side of it first, and then we're going to hit the positive side. What's it look like to have bad fruit, sour grapes, if you will? What's that look like? And when I, when I read starting in 16, it says, I say then, Paul is talking to the Galatian church. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So we wish we could do these things, but the Spirit's there, so it'll take, a, take away those, those sinful wishes that we desire in our minds, right? And so he goes on, he starts listing. Um, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness and lewdness, adultery, saying it's not a spiritual fruit to have adultery. It's a, it's, a, it's a sour grape. It's bad. It's not good. But Jesus kind of comes in on the Sermon on the Mount and really levels the playing field on all of us. And he says, oh, you heard it said of the old, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Like he transcends the law, and he's really going for it, and he's attacking the mind because that's where all sin originates. Fornication, premarital sex, is what he's talking about. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. And so many of you are in here probably like, well, man, I'm just so convicted already. Thanks, Kent. Appreciate that pre-Christmas message. <laughs> Look, when you abide in Christ, his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. If you're abiding in Christ and you fall off, pick you back up and you start abiding in Christ again, he's going to teach you to walk right. It's a daily thing. It's a daily thing. So as I go through this list, we're all going to be hit. Every single one of us, it comes and this levels the playing field so we all see our need for a Savior. That's what it is. Uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry. That means you put anything before God. It becomes your God. Idolatry. Sorcery. Hatred. You have hatred in your heart? You're guilty. You are of the flesh and not of the spirit. You have no fruit. God does not approve of that. If you have hatred in your heart tonight, you're like, God, how do I do this? Abide in Jesus. And we'll, we'll talk about a little, some application principles here shortly on how do I do this. But we at least need to know the truth before we can handle what we need to do and how to move forward. Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders. Jesus said if you have hatred in your heart, you've heard it said of the old, you shall not murder, right? But if you have hatred in your heart towards someone, you're a murderer. Just looking at our mind. Who can stand before God and say we're innocent? Who? No one. Drunkenness, revelries, and the like, which means the list can go on of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit, and let us not become conceited or provoking one another, envying one another. Don't be conceited, right? That's what he says. It's like, look, we're all guilty, every single one of us. So who can be conceited? Who's good enough? Nobody's good enough. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we have to abide in Jesus, because there's no way around it. We'll never be good enough. You can never earn God's approval outside of Jesus and only through Jesus. I love what he says. I'm just going to read this real quickly. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any of these trespasses that I just mentioned, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We are, if we see anybody stumbling in this, oh, we are to go with gentleness, with reverence before God, and come to them and love them the way God loved us. In the midst of our craziness in our life, we're to go to them in gentleness as well. It's a great memory verse to have. It really can help you out in a time of need when we are tempted to judge someone for what they're doing. 
And we just read this and like, okay, this is God's way right here. This right here is God's way. Let's go back to, Gen- or to John chapter 15. And as the Father, this is verse 9, as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. So abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So there's some form of obedience that shows that there's fruit. The reason there's fruit there because they're obedient to be, to be in Christ, to abide in Christ. Sometimes, man, it just takes discipline because our flesh just wages war against anything. That's what it said in Galatians chapter 5. It's contrary to the Spirit. It's just constantly waging war. And we have to discipline sometimes to say, you know what? This morning, I really don't feel like meeting with the Lord. I don't feel like going through a scripture. I know it makes me clean. I just said it right there. I know it's what I need. However, I'm going to do this instead. Then I go throughout my entire day, I don't think about Christ at all. And a lot of it is just because it's my fault. I have no discipline. And then sometimes you're just kind of like, oh, I really don't feel like it. But you know what's good for you, and you override that feeling. And you get in there, and you start talking to God, and next thing you know, you just feel refreshed. Just feel refreshed. Like, I'm so glad I overcame that. I'm so glad I overcame that. And some of you are like, man, I never feel that way. Every time I go into a, a morning like that and I try it, I just walk away and I feel like, man, that was a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. You're pressing into the Lord. The Lord sees that. Continue to try and do it. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain f- in you and that your joy may be full. That's what he wants. He wants our joy to be full. And he even can think about Jesus has joy. And that joy he wants to, to be in me and you. He said, I have joy and I want it to be in you. And when you're in me, you have full joy. Meaning, if you're not in me, you don't have joy. You can't be full in joy and not be in Christ. There's no way. He's really just laying it out. This is probably one of the most important messages he's given to his disciples. He's about ready to be crucified. And he's saying, this is paramount that we understand this. We have to understand abiding in Christ and what this means. This commandment, this is my commandment, he says. And anytime you hear the word commandment, it means God really wants you to do it. (laughs) So what's he say? That you love one another as I have loved you. Is that too much to ask for? Really? Like, this is the mark of a Christian. That's what he's saying. Look, I'm about ready to die, but I need you to know something extremely important. Really important. I'm going to give you a commandment. I want you to be obedient to it. I need you to love each other like I loved you. I need you to understand this and do this. And this right here is the hallmark of the church. This should be what the church is known for. Nothing else should pale in comparison to this little verse right here. He's asked Rocky Mountain Calvary to do this as a commandment. He asked the disciples to do this. 2,000 years ago, as they started the churches, which we're a benefactor of, love one another. This is agape love. This is the love 
That's unconditional love. It's not necessarily the friendship love. This is the love that has no bounds. And he displays it. It says, greater love has no one, in verse 13, than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. There's no greater love than this, he says. And he says, I need you to understand this, and I need you to abide in me so you can do this. Because this is how I want my church to start, and this is how I want my church to operate. These are our operating instructions. This is the one commandment he has given us, that we love one another. Which is the second part of the great commandment, to love God with your entire heart, your, your being, your soul, your mind, everything. And he says, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And I probably, I have to say this, this is probably one of the ones I struggle with the most. I fail at this one, I fail at this one, and I can fail at this one. I hope I don't fail at it tomorrow, which is a good chance I might. And I don't want to. And the only way I know how to love people the way Christ loved them is I have to abide in Christ and I have to learn about Christ so I can apply his principles and his ways in people's lives. And I think about this often, and it seems like it's a chord that's struck in my life for the last four or five years. What's it really mean to exude Christ's love with the people around me, with you, um, with my neighbor, with my enemy? What's it look like? And I study the life of Christ, and I, and I see that how do you hang on a cross and say, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they do. They don't know. They don't understand right now. And whatever thing that comes out of my mouth right now will not be good enough. I just have to display it for them. They have to see it. And that's the hard part for me. I can talk about it all day long. I'll argue the point with you over and over and over. But to display it's another thing. And when it means to love your neighbor as yourself, well, how do you want to be loved? The way your heart desires for you to be loved. The way you need to be loved today. And as an example, I mean, many of you know my wife. She's way more beautiful than I deserve. She's way better than I deserve. Just all the way around. It's just, a, just really an act of grace on God's part to give her to me. I'm telling you, amen, Donna, right? She's amazing. And she's grown me like crazy. We have two totally different personalities. The way I want to be loved is literally the opposite of the way she wants to be loved. And if we are to ever have any tiffs, which we do from time to time, it's 99.99% of the time. I'm trying to love her or treat her the way I want to be treated or loved. And I fail to recognize that she doesn't connect that way. But for me to love her the way she desires and she needs to be loved, the way she's created to receive love, that means it takes effort upon my part more than, than I naturally can just give out. I really have to be pointed with that. More of a volitional love, you know. And I have to stop. And if I do this every single day, if I say, God, help me to love my wife 
which is my number one ministry. There's no other person on this planet that deserves more attention than my spouse because my spouse and me represent Christ in the church. There's no other relationship on this planet that represents Christ in the church. And so I have to literally go to the, go to the Father and say, God, help me to love Rebecca the way she needs to be loved today. Not the way I want to be loved. The way she desires to be loved. And when I do that, man, it's like our marriage is, is hitting on all cylinders. But when I fail to do that because I just doesn't come to my mind or I just feel like being lazy that day or I'm just really into myself and I want to do the things I want to do, you know, which, I mean, you got to do the things that you want to do. I'm not saying that, but my ministry is my wife first and foremost. And when I'm off, she recognizes I'm off. And sometimes she lets me know I'm off. <laughs> and I'm growing in this. Over the past nine and a half years, I'm, I feel like I'm really growing, but I feel like I'm so far off at the same time. Because it's a challenge. It really is. Uh, relationships are just naturally a challenge. And how I love my wife is totally different than how I love my oldest son and how I love my daughter and how I love my crazy little three-year-old son. They all desire my love in a different way than I normally would receive it and accept it. So I have to be intentional to go to my son and say, God, how do I love Joshua today the way he needs to be loved? So to fulfill this commandment, that means you have to be intentional. You literally have to care about that person's interest every single day. And you can't put it on cruise control. It's impossible to put relationships on cruise control and expect them to be vibrant and producing fruit. But he, God wants us to have a fruitful household, have a fruitful work community, have a fruitful neighborhood, have a fruitful church. So that means that we have to get outside of ourselves for a second when we're around somebody and love them the way they need to be loved and not the way you expect to be loved. I know, it's like, I knew that. But it seems like sometimes it's just so hard to grasp that concept. But we can only do that through Christ, he says. So that means I have to see back Rebecca and my son and my daughter and my other son and you, everybody through the lens of Christ. How Christ sees you, I have to see you. And the only way to do that is to pray to the Father and have him help me do that. Because then he says, if you pray to me, I will grant you your prayer. So he's not talking about, oh, I want a new car here. So he says it right here. Right? Whatever I pray for, he's going to give me. If I'm a disciple, I can pray for you. We're talking about relationships in here. The great commandment here. That's what we're talking about. And so it's just like, how in the world do I love that person? How can I do this? And it's just like, well, God, I don't know how to do this. Then he'll grant that to us if we're abiding in him because he'll give you his eyes for that person. And there's a lot of you in here. I guarantee you there's somebody in here. Most of us in here have a list of people that we really get along with. And then we have the list at the bottom. It's like, man, I really could probably do without that person in my life. <laughs> Who doesn't have that? Raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> the kingdom of God is about people. Jesus came for people. This is our fruit. Love. We have to be patient with people. We have to be kind with people. We have to be gentle with people. 
long-suffering with people. That word right there means suffering long. And that's not fun. But he's saying, I'll meet you in this. I'm telling you right now, I'm going to meet you in this. You pray, and I'll meet you there, and I'll help you get through it. And it's what's wonderful is he's an example for us to follow because he had to do it. Our God can relate to us. Nobody else's God can relate to him. They're false gods. Our one true living God relates to us. He, he can relate to us. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his wife for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants. This is a crazy concept. God's our friend. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Listen to this, guys. You did not choose me. You didn't choose Jesus. Says, but I chose you, and I appointed or ordained you. I ordained you that you should go and bear fruit. I chose you to bear fruit. And if you do what I command, you're going to bear fruit. Just be obedient. Hang in there. That's all you have to do. Hang in there with Christ like a branch hangs in there off the trunk. And it just naturally bears fruit. It doesn't have to push itself out. It doesn't. It just naturally, that's what will happen. You will just naturally bear fruit when you abide in Christ and you hang in there with Christ. That your fruit should remain, I'm halfway in 16, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. That's it. I command you to love one another. Your fruit has to be of love. If you're a Christian, whatever's hanging off of you, if you will, should embody love. It should be patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, all these things. But you're like, can't, I don't know how to do any of that. I don't act that way. I'm naturally an angry person. I'm a lustful person. The list goes on, whatever you are. And I'm going to end the service and I want to give you some application point to where maybe you can sink into this. And I'll, I'll kind of give you a testimony of how it came true to my life, how I felt like I started conquering things when I applied the scriptures. It really, that's when I found freedom, gang. This is where I found the freedom. I found it in Christ and the word. But I, I, some of you know my, my, my history. I don't have time to go into my testimony, but I had a crazy upbringing life. I just lived how I wanted to live. It was about me, and it was only about me, you know, and, and I didn't know Christ. I didn't, I wasn't raised with Christ. None of my friends were in Christ, and we really just self-gratification, all these things, and, and if you do that over years, there's, your mind's just going to be full of junk. So when I came to Christ, I understood the gospel. He saved me. And as time went, man, I mean, these outward sins were just flying off. I mean, the cussing and everything else and the drinking and all this stuff was just going away. It was really a miracle. It was just a radical transformation in a short period of time. 
But then I get to a point where about maybe several years into my walk, I just realized, and it's just like, yeah, I might look good on the outside, but I'm still messed up on the inside. And it's like I have no idea how to get out of this in my mind. So I could play all these things going on in my mind, temptations and stuff like that. And, and, but I wouldn't live it out, but it was living out in my mind, if you know what I mean. And Jesus judges the mind. I said, if you even have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder. He's looking at our minds, church. And so I have, you know, a group of guys I meet with on every Friday morning. I've met with them for years, every Friday morning. And I went to them. I was like, okay, I'm going to be obedient. It says in James, confess it before people. All right, it says it. Okay, guys, this is, what I, this is what I'm going through. It seems like I can't conquer this, this mind thing going on. Sinning in my mind like crazy. I don't know how to get around it. And at the time, and so I started asking God, God, help me. I can't do it. Help me. He kind of points me to this section of Scripture that's really radical. It's Matthew chapter 4. Jesus gets baptized, and he goes in the wilderness for 40 Days he fasts and prays, and Satan's there tempting him. As he's coming out, Satan comes and meets him at his lowest point. And he says, what's the first thing after 40 days? What would be the first thing that you would desire? Food. And if you had the power to make food, would you make it? Probably. Jesus had the power. But he couldn't do that. He had to suffer all temptations as we have. We have to every day. He couldn't do it. And so Satan comes to him and says, turn that rock into bread. You can do it. And what's he do? He quotes scripture. Deuteronomy. Shall not tempt the Lord your God. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's all he did, and he killed Satan's temptation right there. With the word of God. Three or two other times, Satan comes and he tempts him with things that Jesus would probably naturally be tempted to do. And he quotes Deuteronomy. One short snippet of scripture, and really just, he beat Satan at his game by quoting scripture. So I was reading this, and it's like, well, if Jesus is doing this, if he has to go through the same temptations and the ways that we have to, and he does this to defeat uh, uh, temptation, to eliminate the temptation before it comes to sin, man, there's something to that. And then at the same time, he points me to several other scriptures, and then the other one was in Ephesians chapter 6. The armor of God passage. And I'm sitting there looking at it, I'm studying it, and you have all these defensive things, the helmet, which is salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and all these things. And, and I'm reading it, and then it gets to the end. He has one offensive weapon, and what is it? The word, the sword. I was like, that's pretty interesting. And in the Greek, it's a short sword. Cuts going in and going out. It's the word of God. And so I'm going to the group, I'm telling the guys this and stuff, and and boom, the landmark passage of Scripture, God literally gives to me. Guys, this is a miracle for me. Because I could not eliminate my thought life. I could not get the hold of my thought life in my own strength. And I went to God and I said, God, help me with this. And he's given me these Scriptures, and he, he sticks me on 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. And I pick it up and I read it. And I try to memorize. I'm not good at memorizing Scripture. And so I write it down on a little note card. And I have a long drive from work to Shriver at the time I was working at Shriver. And so I would stick it on my speedometer so I couldn't see when I'm speeding. 
That's another sin I had struggled with. <laughs> Stick it on there. But the point is, I'm sitting there looking at it, and I'm trying to memorize it. Just trying to memorize it. Just trying to put it in. This is four verses. And then I would set my, my clock, my digital clock. It would get to the top of the hour, and it would beep. And if I wasn't in a conversation with somebody, I would try to memorize that scripture. I'd pull out my little flashcard, and I would try to memorize it until I got this down. If Jesus was memorizing scripture, I'm going to memorize scripture. And so I, I, would, I would repeat it, and it took me a little while to memorize it because it's just not natural. I can, I can memorize a whole song for you, but for whatever reason, I can't memorize four verses. <laughs> I started memorizing it. For though I walk in the flesh, I do not war according to the flesh. I walk in it, but I don't war according to it. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for tearing down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. Taking all thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, and you're ready to punish disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. I memorized that whole thing. Then when the temptations came in my mind, I would repeat one little section of it, though. Can't take all thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Take all thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And it says, I, I created strongholds all my life. In my mind, I created these strongholds, these fortresses. Every time... I had a bad thought or whatever, and I lusted after that, whatever that thought was. Or I meditated upon that thought or whatever. I would just put one block, one block, one block. And then Satan just kind of throws over these, these lobs over these temptations, over the, the fortress wall. just lobs them over. And it's like, how do I fight this? But then I read that, and I'm like, the word. So I started just going at it every time. Boom, boom, just hitting it. And after a while, you know what? It felt like. I can see Satan, and I can take a swing at him. It doesn't mean the temptations will go, but it's like I can manage it. And next thing you know, I'm conquering all these temptations in my mind. I'm controlling my mind and my thought life through the Word of God. It's simply applying it the way Jesus did. Simply applying it the way Jesus did. If we want to bear fruit, we have to know the Word of God because it makes us clean. And we disciples abide in the Word of God. They abide in Jesus. This is what it means to abide in Jesus. It means to ingest as much word about it as you can because Jesus is the word. And we engage the word and we use the word in the way he tells us to use the word. But if we never use the word, we're defenseless. We sit around with our armor on with no offensive weapon and we just take it. And so when I read these sections of scripture in Galatians, it says, well, this is all this hatred, contentions, adultery, fornication. Like, I don't know how to stop any of this stuff. I'm telling you right now, you stop it the way everybody else has to stop it, and it's only through the word of God. You take all thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, and you're going to punish that disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled by applying the scripture, it says. And there's freedom. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But if you have no obedience of scripture in applying the scripture, it's impossible to have the joy and the freedom in the Lord because they're contrary to one another. Sour grapes and good grapes do not go together. The flesh does not walk with the spirit and vice versa. It tells you that. And so I, I read this section. How do I abide in Christ? How do I do this? I just do it the way Jesus showed me to do it. And then I get it. I was like, okay, I can abide. I can do it. And you know, the beautiful thing is his grace is sufficient. He's, merc he's merc 
so merciful. He's rich in mercy. When we mess up, he'll pick us back up and says, you stay in here. You hang in here. And some of you are like, I don't feel like I have any fruit. Look, sometimes it takes a while to ripen. A little green banana sitting on a tree is supposed to be this big when it ripes, but it's this big, it's still fruit. It's just not ripe yet. So don't get down on yourself. Just keep on abiding in Christ, and it'll grow, and it'll be ripe fruit. But you can't do it without abiding in Christ. Amen? What a wonderful section of Scripture. I love this section of Scripture. I think it's really empowering. I think it's, uh, it really tells us a lot about who Jesus is and what he expects of us. He gives us one commandment. Just love one another, right? How do I do that? If you can't do it, apply the word of God. Abide in Christ. Ask God to help you. That's all we can tell you. It, it's all about Jesus. He's the one that's going to do it. We can't do it. This weekend, or this, this Wednesday night, we have communion. We do it every Wednesday because he tells us to do it often in remembrance of him, to remember that his body was broken and his blood was shed. As we take the communion, maybe remember in this passage of scripture, you're talking hours away from his crucifixion. It's when he instituted the Lord's Supper was during this time, right before actually in the, in the Passover meal, before he went and gave his farewell address that we're going through right now. And he says, do this because my body is going to be broken. And this bread right here represents a broken body. This juice or the wine that he had, we have juice. He said, this is, represents my blood. It's going to shed for you. And when you do this, we come together as a body. And there's one thing that we should think about, and that's Jesus Christ and him alone. And we thank him. We thank him for what he has done. But he's risen as well. And we think about that. Defeated death, we defeat death in Christ. So as we take this, really stop and think about him. Think about what kind of relationship he wants with you. And confess whatever you need to confess to him. Some of you in here don't know Christ. Today is like no other day. Make a decision. I'm going to abide in Christ. You cannot have a relationship with your heavenly father without going through Jesus. And he died for you. And when you come to him, you have to recognize your sin. Excuse me. You have to recognize your sin. And we are all in that place. We've all done it. We had to recognize it. It's humbling. But when you do, that's when God can really work with you.